It's an honor to be here this morning, and I'm not just saying that because that's what guest speakers are supposed to say. Uh, it is genuinely an honor to be here. Uh, as Pastor Steve said, I'm one of the pastors at Scarlet City Church in Clintonville, and we are tightly bound to New Life, whether you're aware of that or not. Uh, not only uh, was, uh, was New Life and Pastor Steve uh, one of the first people we met a few years ago when we moved to Columbus, but he's been one of our number one cheerleaders and encouragers throughout our, our few years as a church plant. In addition to that, uh, when we were beginning to go through our most difficult season as a church, uh, he made himself available to us around every turn. You see, um, in March 2011, um, my wife and I suffered the, the sudden and tragic death of our son Deacon about a month before he turned three years old. Uh, he was struck by a car, uh, it took us by complete surprise, and obviously overwhelmed us as it would any family. And in the midst of that, we were about a month away from actually launching the church plant. And, and everything was just turned upside down in our lives. And Pastor Steve made himself available to shepherd a bunch of young 20-something-year-old pastors through tragedy. And in my mind, it, it, it just kept coming up to me like we should be asking him to, to lead us through all of this. We should be asking Pastor Steve to lead us through the services and everything like that. But he did something for us that uh, really catalyzed what I think um, made, made a huge difference in our church plant. Uh, and that's he, he encouraged the other leaders of the church to step up and shepherd our own church plant through tragedy. And at the time, I didn't know how important and significant that was, but what that really did was allow, allow us to see and show the world that even the most tragic thing, even the mo one of the most powerful tools of the evil one, the death of a child, could not stop God's mission from advancing. So for me to be able to come and share some of the things we've gleaned about God's power and the gospel being enough, even in the midst of suffering, I genuinely mean it's an honor to be here sharing with you all, sharing in worshiping our risen Savior. If you'll go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Romans 8, that's going to be our primary text for this morning. I want to walk us through how Romans 8 really exclaims that the gospel is enough. And I want to do that through talking about the present, the promise, and the price. In Romans 8, I'll start for us in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. 
Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. See, I I believe this passage at, at the beginning of our study of Romans 8 reveals that God completely understands the present state of the world that we live in. See, the things of this world are not as they were intended to be. Everything is broken. In fact, there is suffering, futility, which just means fruitlessness or pointlessness. There's bondage to sin, decay, corruption. And the passage even says there's groaning happening throughout all of creation. In fact, all of creation at all times is groaning, eagerly awaiting something. Does anyone here like the outdoors at all? I'll tell you what, if you like the outdoors, uh, you, you have to hear the story of this, the summer that my wife and I met. We met in Colorado in June, one of the most gorgeous places on the earth and one of the most gorgeous times of year. We got to spend uh, an entire summer in the same city and exploring the outside, you know, God's gorgeous creation. There was actually one time where she and I and, and about six other people had the opportunity to go horseback riding through the Rocky Mountains. It, it was amazing. Now, the, the amount of uh, experience the eight or so of us had was about this much, but we had an actual cowboy, like these things, these people really exist, an actual cowboy leading us through the Rocky Mountains on horseback. And as soon as we got our horses all picked out, The first thing he did was take us up the steep side of a mountain. And it was, we were all white knuckling the reins. And then he brought us down another side, just as steep. And as soon as we got down that, our our guts were all melding together. And he walked us through a river where the water was, of course, moving and about up to the bottoms of our feet. When we got to the other side, this is like all in the first hour, and we're like, okay, we got our money's worth. (laughs) As soon as we got to the other side of the river, we sort of circled up, and he said, I just want you guys to know that the horse doesn't want to die every bit as much as you don't want to (laughs) die. So now we'll really start our trek through the mountains. Once we got through that, uh, we were able to, to look around us and see the gorgeous Gorgeous mountains, morning, afternoon, and dusk. We got to see God's creation, and it was absolutely beautiful. And for us, some of us have our own images that come to mind when we think of creation, whether it's the mountains or for some people it's maybe the sunset at the beach. For some of us, it's the Grand Canyon. We've been wowed by that. Or maybe we're, we're even able to enjoy the, the flower beds that are in our yards. But there's something about God's creation that just causes us to be in awe. And you know what I think that is? Is I think we're looking at creation and it's actually doing what it was intended to do. Pointing us to its creator and being in awe of you thought of this God. 
and it's amazing. But this passage says all of creation, even the most gorgeous scenes we can think of, are groaning, waiting to be renewed by God. See, the world that we live in is broken. The fact that we're able to still see beauty is a sign of God's grace. Yet even the most beautiful landscapes are broken and groaning, waiting for renewal. And that's important for us to understand. All things are groaning. Although God could have scrapped all of creation at the very inception of sin, Romans 8 tells us that God is not finished with creation yet. Romans 8 also says that we too are groaning inwardly. And I'm sure my wife and I are not alone in this. I'm sure there are some people here who have felt that, that pain, trials, and hardships that we may be going through at any given point in our lives are just insurmountable. And I'm sure some of us have felt, maybe even some of you feel today, this wondering if life is even really worth continuing on living. Or maybe you've been in such difficult circumstances that you turn to God, but you don't even know what to say. You've got no words. Don't even know how to pray. But the scripture tells us in verse 26 and 27 that even when our guts, even when our insides don't know what to say, God says that his spirit is acting on our behalf. Now God's spirit speaks to us and God's spirit also speaks for us. And both of those are really important. See, in John 14, just before Jesus went to the cross, he was telling his disciples that the Spirit was going to come. And he used a couple of words for his Spirit. He called the Spirit the Counselor. You see, the Spirit speaks to us as a Counselor, reminding us that God is going to help, that there is hope. And the Spirit also speaks for us to the Father, saying, your will be done, God, on earth as it is in heaven, make things right. So God's spirit is calling out to us and for us for hope. And what is our hope? The hope that the spirit is reminding us of is that Jesus suffered for us. And in verse 18, Paul reminds us in Romans that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. That, my friends, is hope. Jesus suffered for us to eventually put an end to all suffering. God understands the dilemma of us living in a broken world. He understands the groanings of creation and our groanings inwardly. And although for a while we will still have to endure sufferings resulting in the brokenness of the world, God has also given us a promise. So there's a little bit of comfort in God understanding the brokenness that we live in, but there's a great deal of comfort in God's promise. And that's where it picks up in verse 28. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, and in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he foreknew, or in those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's been said that if the Bible was a precious ring, then Romans 8 would be like the jewel, the centerpiece of that ring. And if Romans 8 is the jewel, then Romans 8.28 is really the sparkle of the jewel on that ring, that promise that things are working together for good to the glory of God. And I'd, I'd really like to say a few things about this that can help us embrace the beauty and the joy this passage offers because of God's promise. The first is reality. We have to understand that all things are working to the glory of God in light of reality. And what does reality remind us of? Those words, all things. All things. Not some things, not most things, not even good things, but all types of things happen to both Christ followers and unbelievers. That is crucial for us to remember. We also must debunk the prominent worldview of our culture. You see, the world that we live in, in, uh, in the United States in, in this day and age, really has an underlying philosophy, this, this sort of undercurrent in our thinking that if we are just good people, we work hard, we're kind to our neighbors, then good things will happen back to us. That's some sort of Americanized karma. That is not what the scriptures say. That's great to think about, but what happens when suffering comes on you? Is it because of something you did? Is it because the world or the universe is just getting even with you? No, the scripture says it's because the world is broken and all types of things are going to happen to people. That's the reality. But why? Scripture tells us, for good. All things are going to happen for good according to his purposes. See, once I wrap my mind around reality that all types of things happen to both the Christian and the unbeliever, I really determined that I was going to figure out every way that God was going to use the death of my baby boy to his glory. So I started documenting. I got emails from strangers talking about people trusting Christ through hearing our family's story. My wife and I have received notes from people in different parts of the world telling us that they're encouraged to live lives, lives of faith because they're watching our, our testimony. And I was writing it all down. And not long after Deacon's death, a, uh, a news team asked if they could do a human interest story on a, a suffering pastor. And I went ahead and said, okay. And it was aired on the news throughout central Ohio for a couple of days. One of my close friends asked me after it, after it had aired, well, how do you feel? And before I could respond with words, I just started weeping because I didn't feel an ounce better. I did not feel an ounce better knowing that God was using our family's tragedy to his glory. But you see, 
I understood reality, but that was a catalyst to remind me that I need to understand this in light of humility. All things are happening for good according to his purpose. See, if you're like me, you can make the mistake of erring on the the idea that God should be running his plan by you before he actually does things in this world. And that, that, that seems like something that's acceptable until you sort of say it out loud and understand how arrogant that can be. God, you really should check by me first. We turn to just a, a couple chapters later in Romans. Listen to the character of God. Listen in Romans 11.33, what it says about God. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. His judgments are unsearchable. His ways are inscrutable. There are things about God that are just unable to be comprehended. We must have that sense of humility when we approach God. To know the intricacies of his divinely designed master plan would make us equal with God. Sometimes we even think we know better than God especially when it comes to our kids. But consider, I know for sure that I never would have written the blueprint for redemption through the death of my son. But that's exactly what God did. I am so unlike God. All of us are. In the past two years, I've considered many times that I'm not sure if I could trust a God that knew nothing of suffering But when I read the scriptures, I see that my God knows the depths of suffering, and he chose it. This drives us to humility. When I think about how different I am than God, my mind often goes to a verse that many of us memorize upon the inception of our faith. And if you haven't memorized it, I'm sure you've seen it before, because at every sporting event, someone feels compelled to put on clown hair and hold up a sign that says, John 3.16. You think about John 3.16. Contemplate the message of John 3.16. What does it say? Does it say that for God so loved his only son that he gave him the world? That would have made perfect sense. It would have made perfect sense for the scriptures to say that. But no, John 3.16 said for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We are so unlike God. We must approach God's promise in light of reality, humility, And lastly, in light of eternity. In verse 29 and 30, we see that those those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those he he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now consider these actions. These are all actions that God does. In other words, God is the one that's doing the work yet he's giving his children the reward. We are the beneficiaries of the works of God. I really want you to focus on that word glorified. Of all the things that have happened to the follower of Christ, glorified is the only one that hasn't taken place yet. Now, there's some good-looking people here. I'm sure you probably look in the mirror some days and say, I don't know, I think I'm pretty close to glory. 
And some of us are, are really waiting for that day longing. <laughs> but I promise you, it's the only one that hasn't taken place yet. But there is something so significant about this future-oriented term, glorified, that there is such confidence that God will honor his promise and glorify his children that he still uses the past tense of the word. Why does he do this? Because God's promises are secured guarantees. You can assure that if God promises, if he says it, he's going to follow through. So glory is a future-oriented word for us, and it demands an eternal perspective. One of the most beautiful chapters in Scripture is 1 Corinthians 15, which is all about the implications of the resurrection of Jesus. And that reminds us that future glory is bound tightly to the resurrection. They're inseparable. Because of the fact of the resurrection, we will be glorified. And 1 Corinthians 15 also reminds us of the victory of the power of even death that was won through the death and resurrection of God's only son. So when we read the words of God's promise in Romans 28, 8, 28 to 30, we should read this promise in light of reality, humility, and eternity. This mindset frees us. It liberates us to be fearless, even in the midst of suffering and trials in this life. Do you hear that? Thinking, thinking about God's promise, living in light of God's promise with reality, humility, and eternity frees us to live a fearless life, not painless, not a feelingless life, not an emotionless life because we still live in the midst of a broken world, but a fearless life. Why? Because no suffering, not even the depths of pain and sorrow caused by death is not under the power of Jesus. Death cannot touch the follower of Christ. Isn't that one of the most liberating things that you can hear? No suffering is more powerful than the power of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And friends, if you are hurting if you are wondering whether you can keep going through trials and hardships and suffering, I promise you that if you are still here, that is a sign that God is not finished with you yet. He wants to use you as an instrument of his glory in both the work he's doing in you and through you. I want to welcome up a woman who I'm certain God is not finished with yet, that is my wife, Monica, the mother of Deacon, also the mother of Lily and Rocco, our other children. All the things that I've shared with you to this point are things that she and I have been learning together, and I'm actually sure more people here want to hear from you instead of me. So I thank you in advance for fighting through your fear of microphones to come and share the good news with us. <laughs> It's an honor to worship and serve God in this way. And I love that, you know, one of Deacon's favorite songs was by the rapper Lecrae, and it was called God is Enough. So even the series reminds me of him and how God continues to use his story. It was the first day of spring, 
a time of year that shouts new life, especially after a particularly cold Ohio winter. I remember that day well. It was a day like any other, except that I recall that several times I stopped and marveled at how much I was really enjoying my son Deacon. His laugh, his smile, his energy, his precious spirit that we were learning about more and more each day. You see, my, my son spent a lot of his first year of life doing a lot of crying, a lot of crying. We could never quite figure out why, but if he wasn't sleeping, he was crying. Sometimes he would pause if mommy would hold him or when he was eating, but that didn't always work, and he was extremely loud. Um, needless to say, it added a lot of stress to an already extremely stressful season in our life. So to be able to pause and give sincere thanks for my time with him was truly a gift. Little did I know at that time just how much of a precious gift that time with him would end up being. Later that day, we were at my daughter's dance lesson, and the events that would ensue would change our lives forever. Lily had just gone into her lesson when we heard screaming from outside. The next couple of hours are mostly a horrific blur, but before the night was over, we were leaving the hospital, but without our son. Our precious deacon had died. And I remember distinctly in the first 24 hours screaming out to God, why? Why, God? Why me? Why us? Why deacon? And almost immediately following that thought was this small voice, why not me? Did I really think myself so special to be untouchable by the brokenness in this world? I realized that I was at a point when I had no choice but to determine what I truly believe about this God I had committed my life to following and whether he had inflicted this unbearable pain on me. But even in the depths of my grief, I was reminded of God's character. God is unchanging. He says of himself in Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. My God is immutable, unchangeable. It is impossible for him to change who he is. And if this is true, then all of his promises to me, to all of his children, are unchanging as well. The God I reveled in in my sweetest of seasons is the same God who is walking with me through this valley of the shadow of death. And the promises of good that made my heart soar in seasons of prosperity are the same ones that I desperately need to cling to as my emotions and feelings and circumstances beg me to believe otherwise. To doubt this unfailing, never-ending, overflowing, one-way love of my God. After Deacon died, my world was shattered. Everything I thought I knew was suspended. For example, I remember the confusion and the frustration I felt for several weeks as I tried to figure out exactly how to be a mom to one child after having been a mom of two for almost three years. In the midst of my suffering, my feelings would often contradict the things I knew to be true about God, that he loves me, that he's near to me, that he's my protector as well as my children's, that he is good and has a magnificent plan for me and my family. But his unchangeableness, even in the darkest of times, is where I find peace because God's character isn't dependent on me. God's character isn't dependent on my feelings and God's character isn't dependent on my circumstances. God is who he says he is because he is God. 
And sometimes the only praise I can muster is that I am so very glad that God's faithfulness isn't dependent on me. The God I know is a blessing God. He gives and he gives, and again, this isn't dependent on me or on us, but it is because of his abundant grace and mercy towards his children. In the book of Job, after receiving word that every one of his children, as well as his servants and livestock, had been taken out tragically in an instant, Job rightfully cried out in pain and worship to the Lord. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, I know Job was a very God and wisely man, but I have to disagree with him. As a fellow grieving parent, I can truly understand how God could have, or Job could have felt that God was the one that took his children from him. But this isn't so. God didn't take Job's children from him any more than God took Tekin from us. Death took Job's children, his servants, and his livestock. And death is what took our son from us. Death, which was ushered in as a result of sin. And we know that God hates sin. God hates that my son experienced death, and he grieves and he aches with me that my son has died. In the midst of this season of suffering, we saw God generously give and give, bless and bless some more. He gives us the grace and the faith to endure what has been by far the darkest, most painful season of our life. In addition to that, we have seen God continue to go above and beyond in blessing us by strengthening our marriage and family life, giving us the desire to have more children and to parent them well, and also to use our story to make his name famous, just to name a few. Friends, God is enough. And he doesn't just meet our basic needs or simply sustain us through suffering. He does much more. He gives us a future hope. This hope lies in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How on earth can a person's response to death of a child be inspiring? I believe it with great certainty it is because of the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is not just a legend in history. If it wasn't for the certainty of the resurrection, I would have no hope. I would be lost in despair and afraid of death. We all would. Jesus' resurrection is real and true and amazing. It changes everything. When Deacon died, I had two choices. To believe the resurrection and all the hope and the promises that come with it, or to deny it and drift into despair, accepting the meaninglessness of living in a broken, pointless, and often cruel world. Anytime we face trials and suffering, we have those same two choices. And in all my pain and hurt and confusion, God allowed me the grace to believe what was true, even if I didn't understand it. And for that, I am so thankful. But he didn't stop there. Living in the hope of the resurrection doesn't just apply for seasons of deep pain. As God brought healing through my suffering, I started to find the beauty of the resurrection seeping into other areas of my life. 2 Corinthians 5 says that God is reconciling the world back to himself through Jesus. You see, God is in the business of fixing broken things. He fixes the brokenness of the world through sending his son to be broken on a cross. And through Jesus' resurrection, God is putting a death to death. 
And if he can overcome the power of death, he can overcome the power of anything. What does he ask of us? Trust. And that's how we continue to live. We've talked about God's awareness of the present state of the world that we live in. We've talked about God's promise that things are working together for good and for his glory. And lastly, we look at the price. If you follow along with me in Romans 8, 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All the things that we struggle with force us back to the idea of God. Asking, who are you and what are you doing in this life? Sufferers often wonder whether God is for us. And throughout the Bible, God gives his people his different names at different points in history to remind his people of his character. In different parts of scripture, we see God remind his people that he is Jehovah Jireh, which is the Lord provides. At different points, we see him remind his people that he is Jehovah Rapha, which is the Lord heals. Consider the the name God uses for himself. In verse 32, he who did not spare his own son. That's the way God wants to be remembered by his people in light of suffering. He who did not spare his own son. He who cares beyond measure. He who cares beyond reason. He who emptied his bank account for us you listen to the passage again when we replace the word God in verse 31 with that same name for God what then shall we say to these things if he who did not spare his own son is for us who can be against us he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him Graciously give us all things. In conclusion, when we ask ourselves whether the gospel is enough to endure suffering, we should cling to what we see and hear in Romans 8. The fact that God understands the present state of the world and he's not finished with it. That God promises things are working together for good and he's not done with us. And that God spared no expense to pay the price. So he is loving and trustworthy. Friends, the gospel is undoubtedly enough when it comes to suffering. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we ask that you help us to remember the present state of this broken world. Help us to remember the promise that you've made 
to make things right. Lord, help us to remember that if we are still here, that is a reminder that you are not finished working in us and through us. And God, please keep it fresh in our minds, the price you paid to address the brokenness of this world. You laid down your son's life in order that we could live. But you did not stop there. You offered us new life through the resurrection. God, I pray for anyone here who is hurting today, who is struggling with suffering, no matter how great or how small, that they would see that you are not finished with them yet. It is in your son's powerful, resurrected name that we pray. Amen.